to uh, give thanks to uh, Pastor Andrew and those that have ministered to us in the choir today. Um, my heart was challenged and encouraged by that, and it's a very appropriate that we sang that this morning, our memory verse, which we do have as a church each month. We have a memory verse we strive to memorize, and we are memorizing the first few verses of that psalm, Psalm 139. And so that was very appropriate. I don't know if that was on purpose or not, but uh, we'll call it providential. So uh, we go over that on Wednesday night as a congregation, but thank you for that ministry to us. Well, we've been making our way through this book of Ecclesiastes, this Old Testament book that um, maybe you're somewhat familiar with, but hopefully by the end of our time together, you'll have a firmer grasp upon its contents. And today, again, we're looking at Solomon's assessment of life and noting what this tremendously wise man teaches us about the life we live and the world in which we find ourselves today. I was this week in a different city, and I was traveling to a place that I was somewhat familiar with, but not really familiar with, and I found myself uh, extremely dependent upon the navigation app on my phone. Now, my wife and I have conversations about this, which app is best. Uh, we go back and forth a lot, actually, and I won't tell you the particular app that I was using. Uh, but uh, I did find that it had certain limitations. However, have you ever wondered how we ever get anywhere without our navigational app? You that are old enough, do you remember the old days of maps? And you had to buy the latest updated map to make sure it was up to date? And now we have these navigational things on our phone? Well, I'm very aware that Though navigational apps are very helpful, that they can sometimes lead you astray. Just a few years ago, hundreds of drivers were heading to the Borgata Hotel in Atlantic City, and they found themselves in the middle of nowhere. Apparently, an erroneous Borgata Hotel ad on Waze, which apparently way too many drivers clicked, directed the users not to the hotel but to the New Jersey Wildlife Preserve, which is 70 miles north of that hotel. What's more, that area has many unpaved roads, so it's not necessarily a surprise that many drivers actually called and asked for help because they'd gotten stuck by traveling off of the road. In fact, the Jackson Township Police Department said that one driver actually said somebody drove over 10 minutes off of a paved highway on a gravel road looking for a luxury resort. <laughs> well, maybe that hasn't been your experience, but perhaps you, like I, more than once have found yourself at a dead end. You've been looking for something and even though you're carefully following the GPS instructions, you find yourself suddenly at the end of the road and wondering, how did I ever get here? You know, life is sometimes like that. We are searching for things in this life. We look ultimately for that which satisfies, that which will make us happy and content and so, like driving down different avenues, we're, we're searching for that thing that we'll finally grasp that kind of puts all the pieces of the puzzle together 
and, and makes me content with the way that things are. Well, we have in the book of Ecclesiastes a man who had all the resources available to him to do just that. Drive down every avenue, pursue every possible pleasure in order to try to find, does this really satisfy? Will it lead me somewhere else than a dead-end road? And he has been noting for us that although these things look initially promising, that there is some kind of happiness or some sort of pleasure in this thing, that as he, with all of his vast resources, travels down that road, he recognizes it's a dead end. It doesn't really do what it promised. And so what kinds of things has Solomon been teaching us about his own experience in looking for satisfaction in life? Back in chapter 1, in verses 16 to 18, he went down this avenue of wisdom, of really knowledge and learning about life in a kind of philosophical way. And he traveled down this avenue thinking it held the key, it held the answer to satisfaction, only to find that that street was a dead end. And so he kind of goes on this pendulum swing and he says, well, if wisdom wasn't it, maybe I'll just give myself to folly, as he calls it. We would call it pleasure or hedonism or materialism. Let me just throw caution to the wind and let me live a life of partying. Maybe that's where I'll find pleasure and ultimate contentment. And that's what he records in the first 11 verses of chapter 2. And he says, I turned the car down this road. I went down that road quite a ways. And it's a dead end. In fact, look at his dead end. Look at verse 11 of chapter 2. He says, Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil that I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind. It was like chasing the wind. I couldn't find satisfaction there. And now when we come to chapter 12 in our text this morning, Notice what he says, or chapter 2 rather, verse 12. Notice what he says. So I turned to consider wisdom and madness and folly. And if you've been with us the last couple of weeks, you might be looking at that and saying, well, wait a minute, I thought he's already been down this road. I mean, you just mentioned wisdom back in chapter 1 and verse 16. I thought he's already been down this road and found it to be a dead end. Why does he go back to that? And I think there is a distinction here in what Solomon means by the wisdom we're going to look at today with regard to the wisdom we looked at a couple of weeks ago back in chapter 1 and verse 16. Previously, chapters 1 verses 12 through 18, as I said, is kind of a philosophical wisdom. It's kind of, let's, let's look at different worldviews in life. Let's read the sages of the past and see how, how they have viewed this world. It's, it's philosophical. And when we come to chapter 2 and verse 12, the kind of wisdom we're talking about here is practical. In fact, in your ESV version, if you have that in your lap, you'll see that, that the, the titles are different. If you look above chapter 1 and verse 12, it says the vanity of wisdom And then if you look at chapter 2 and verse 12, the heading is what? The vanity of living wisely. And you can see they even are showing a distinction. You have this kind of philosophical wisdom, but now Solomon says, I'm going to turn down a different road. It has to do with wisdom, but it's a practical kind of everyday wisdom. 
we would say it's this skill in living. It's, it's a common sense kind of wisdom. Is this the answer to life? If I can just gain enough experience and knowledge and exercise good judgment in this life, will that ultimately prove happiness to me? Because I've lived life wisely. And so Solomon brings this question to our mind, and he's asking this question primarily in our text this morning, is living a moderate, prudent, moral life any better than living a partying kind of life that he just mentioned in chapter 2, verses 1 through 11? Does it benefit me to... Follow this mantra, early to bed, early to rise, makes one healthy, wealthy, and wise. Or does it benefit me to you only go around once, so grab all you can now? Which one of those is better? This is the question he's asking. So this morning in our text, I want us to follow this kind of theme It's another look at wisdom. Will this kind of wisdom ultimately satisfy this practical kind of wisdom? We'll examine that closely together. Let's pray and just ask God to help us. Lord, would you help us in the few moments that we have to understand your word and apply it to our lives today? Amen. You'll notice that he begins with his credentials. Why should we listen to him with regard to this? Chapter 2, verse 12. So I turn to consider wisdom, this practical kind of wisdom, and madness and folly to contrast these two. For what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. And by that, all that Solomon is saying is, I again am supremely qualified to make these kinds of conclusions. He says, who can surpass what I've done? As this wise man, this king with all the resources available, he says, no one is going to come after me and say, ah, but you didn't do this. Because Solomon says, I've done it all. That's all that he means by that phrase. And so what are his conclusions in this question that we've brought up? Well, I want us to note, first of all, the gain of practical wisdom. Here's some good news for us in verse 13 and the first part of verse 14 is is everything has been so negative up to this point. Do you remember how we've read these things and it's like so negative and it's like, well, what's the use of that? And here there's actually some positive. He says there is gain in this life by exercising practical wisdom. Look at verse 13. Then I saw that there is more gain in this practical wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. He kind of gives us this little illustration that says, yes, in this life, if you use practical wisdom, it does have benefits. It's better living that way than living for folly. And here's the illustrations he gives. He tells us the gain of practical wisdom is compared to the advantage of light over darkness. That's what he says in verse 13. Now, we appreciate the role of light. Light makes things easier. 
Think about it. When you're in a, your house at night, and perhaps this even happened to you last week with that windstorm, and it's at night, and you're in your house, and the power goes out. And now you have to traipse all the way to the basement to try to figure out how to hook up a generator or something in order to get light. What do you do? Right? You stumble through your house, a place where you have walked hundreds of times. But it's dark. And so you're fumbling through things to make sure you don't kick the corner of the couch or step on a Lego, right? Or something like that. And you're fumbling around to get to the, to the place that you need to be. Well, living life without this practical kind of wisdom and insight, Solomon says, is like, it's not like navigating your own house in the darkness. It's like the power goes out and you're trying to navigate your neighbor's house in the darkness. Imagine that. And so what he's saying is, if you have wisdom in this life, practical insight, it's going to help you. There is gain in that. The other thing he says is this, by way of illustration, the gain of practical wisdom is compared to the advantage of sight over blindness. Look at verse 14. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. That's probably a proverb, maybe one that was oft-repeated in that day. And Solomon just picks that up, and he says, someone who is wise in practical wisdom, they have their eyes in the right place they can see. It's almost like they don't have them in their pockets or something, right? They're actually in their head, and they can see. And so these are people who possess the skill to make good choices that tend toward good things. These are people that have foresight. They know the outcome of their decisions. They're maybe willing to make short-term sacrifices for long-term gains. They have experience in the world, and they're using that experience to help them navigate the difficulties of life. They can see. And that's obviously an advantage over being blind. And so Solomon begins by telling us that, yes, this practical wisdom is helpful. In fact, quickly, we need to move quickly this morning. Look at the book of Proverbs in chapter 4. Now, here's a little test for you. Who wrote the book of Ecclesiastes? Solomon. And who wrote the majority of Proverbs? Solomon. Same guy. And here we are in chapter 4. And now this is, I think, younger Solomon. And Solomon is going to say this about wisdom. Proverbs chapter 4, look at verse 5. He tells his son, get wisdom, get insight. Do not forget. Do not turn away from the words of my mouth. Do not forsake her. She will keep you. Love her. She will guard you. The beginning of wisdom is this. Get wisdom, and whatever you get, get insight. Prize her highly. She will exalt you. She will honor you if you embrace her. She will place on your head a graceful garland. She will bestow on you a beautiful crown. You can see he said this before. Be wise. Get insight. Get experience. Now look at verse 18. Proverbs 4, 18. But the path of the righteous is like what? The light of dawn which shines brighter and brighter until the full day. Isn't that what we read in Ecclesiastes? The path of the righteous, the wise person, is like the lights on in the room. Verse 19, but the way of the wicked is like deep what? Darkness. They do not know over what they stumble. 
So Solomon has said this before. He uses the same kind of comparison. And here's what he says ultimately back in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, in verses 13 and 14a, he says, use wisdom to skillfully navigate this light. Can I put it this way? When the power is off, use a flashlight. And he's saying wisdom is like that flashlight. It will help you navigate life. So is this a solution? If we just all grow in a practical kind of experiential wisdom, we'll finally be satisfied because that is the key that unlocks every problem in life. Is that true? Go back to the book of Ecclesiastes. Because in the second half of verse 14, he's going to now speak of the disappointment of practical wisdom. Look at the second half of verse 14. He says, the fool walks in darkness, and yet I perceived the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. For of the wise, as of the fool, there's no enduring remembrance. Seeing that in the days to come, all will have been long forgotten. How the wise, what? Dies just like who? The fool. See what he's saying? He's saying this practical wisdom that is so helpful in this life has its limitations. And he gives three of them. Let me enumerate them for you. Verses 14 and 15, he tells us that practical wisdom offers no guarantees in this life. He says at the end of verse 14, the same event happens to them all. What is he saying? Wisdom, no matter how wise you are in this life, can't protect you from life's surprises. Even though you use all the experience and wisdom and foresight that you have, there are certain things out of your control. Is that not true? Suffering, death, a bad diagnosis, sudden release from a job, happens to all people, not just foolish people. It happens to wise people. We would think if we were running the world, those kinds of things, those events, would only happen to foolish people, would only happen to morally bankrupt people. And so sometimes our minds go to this thought, well, since those bad things are happening to those people, they must be sinful people. They must be morally bankrupt people. And then you have a whole book in your Bible that God gives us just to keep us from going down that road. And that book is the name of a man. And his name is Job. And those things happen to Job but Job was a wise man. 
But this is Solomon's point. Practical wisdom offers no guarantee. In general, there's gain, but there's no guarantee that if you live your life wisely, that you'll never be touched by suffering or sudden loss or difficulty. And we have to grapple with this. In general, wisdom profits, but it is no guarantee. Ultimately, we need to understand that we're not in control of our lives. Well, yes, use wisdom. That's important. But I can't just plug it in like an equation so that it all comes out to my liking because I'm not ultimately in control. Practical wisdom offers no guarantees in life. Secondly, he says this, practical wisdom leaves no legacy. Look at the first part of verse 16. For of the wise, as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come all will have been long forgotten. What's he saying? Ultimately, this will burst your bubble. He's saying, you're not going to be remembered. How do you feel about that? Recently, I was walking through a park, and they had all of these nice benches, and there were these plaques on these benches, and I didn't know these people. I didn't know their names, but these names are there, and they meant something to someone, and they're trying to preserve a legacy. But even as I sat there, I thought, someday those benches are going to rot, and someday that plaque is not going to look the same. You won't even recognize it. And yet, you sit here, and you might be skeptical, and you say, well, wait a minute. What about famous people? Right? We're reading about Solomon. His legacy has endured. And all I want to say to you as, is this. The exceptions prove my point. Trillions of people have been on this planet and died. And we remember how many? A few stand out. And yet we all think, I'm going to be a Solomon and be remembered. Not likely. And Solomon's just saying, this is the way it goes. You live your life wisely. You want to establish a legacy. But in the end, are you going to be remembered? When, when I'm gone from this place, there might be a footnote somewhere that says, Matt Fagan, pastor of Heritage Baptist Church because they have some 100-year celebration. and Nobody knows who this guy is, but we'll just put his name right there. Yeah. Great, I'm a footnote. Yes. <laughs> Practical wisdom. Yes, live wisely. It's game, but it's not going not gonna to leave a legacy. And here's the big one. Last part of verse 16. How the wise dies, just like the fool. Practical wisdom will not deliver you from death. Death is the great equalizer of human beings. Charles Spurgeon said, six feet of dirt makes all men equal. Wisdom can prevent you from an untimely death, right? Wisdom tells me 
Don't jump in front of buses. But even practical wisdom won't ultimately deliver you from death. I can live my life with great wisdom and skill and insight, but in the end, I'll die just like the fool. It's the great equalizer. You cannot avoid death ultimately. It visits us all. These things make practical wisdom disappointing. Why does Solomon give us these things? It's like a goad. Do you remember when we, when we introduced this book, at the end it says the wise sayings are like goads, and I said this is like a, a pointy instrument that they would poke the ox with to turn him in the right direction. And here's what Solomon's doing. He's saying wisdom is great, get it. Let me give you three goads now to push you in the right direction. Think about this and your practical wisdom. And it's meant to drive us to a certain conclusion, to get us thinking in the right way. Well, what is this conclusion? What is the conclusion to seeking satisfaction and practical wisdom? Look at verse 17. Would you read out loud the first four words for me of verse 17? Here we go. So I hated life. How do you like that one? Here's my conclusion about all of these pursuits of practical wisdom. I hate life. Let me ask you, is that a conclusion you should draw? You're a Christian person. Be careful. Here's a wise man, and he's saying, I hated life. Well, beloved, is it not true that this life puzzles you? It has problems you can't solve. There are things that happen to you and good people that you know, and you scratch your head, and you say, why? And you tend to think, you know, this life, it can be kind of miserable. It can be hard. And it can be difficult. And all I want to say to you, beloved, is this. That's okay. It's okay for you to draw that right conclusion. Sometimes this life stinks. This is what Solomon is concluding and what he's telling us. If we really have eyes in our head to see, well, think about this. You say, well, that doesn't sound very Christian. Right? Christian is supposed to be, hey, it's all fine. It's, it's no problem. It's sun's always shining. It's, it's the joy of the Lord. And there's certainly truth in that. But let me ask you, is this like Jesus? Is it like Jesus to hate life? And I don't mean in a bitter, kind of angry kind of way, but look at life and its puzzles and its problems and say, ah, yeah, this is bad, this stinks. Well, what do you make of this? Let's, let's look at this and we'll be done. A New Testament passage. Look at John chapter 11. The Gospel of John, 
the 11th chapter. And here we find the seventh of these signs that John gives us to prove that Jesus is the Son of God. And it's here that Jesus finds himself at a funeral. And it's not just any funeral. It's the funeral of his close friend, Lazarus. Somebody he loved has died. And he finds himself at this funeral procession, as it were, and there are, there are his other friends, Lazarus' sisters, Mary and Martha, and they're weeping and crying. They, they can't figure out life. It's, it's a hard time. When you lose a loved one, it's a difficult time. And what is Jesus' response to all of this? This is very interesting. Look at verse 33. We're just jumping right into the context. It says, when Jesus saw her weeping, this is Mary, she's crying because she's lost her brother, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping. There's this great outpouring of sorrow. We're told in the text, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Now, here's what's fascinating. If you look at that in the original language, in fact, some translations translate it this way, that Jesus was angry. He was deeply stirred in his heart about this death. Why? It's because Jesus himself is looking around and he's seeing the effects of a sin-cursed world. He's walking with us in our humanity and somebody he loves has died. And in essence, he's saying, I hate this. It's bad. It stinks. It hurts. Jesus hated what sin and its curse had done to his friend. But he doesn't leave it there. Because what does he do about it? Well, even further, look at John 11 and verse 35, the shortest verse in all the Bible, right? It says, Jesus wept. Now, here it's saying he sorrows. He identifies with those in sorrow, and it's like he sheds a tear in his eye. The first is this. He, he hates life. This stinks, and he's going to do something about it, but he feels the emotional impact, and he weeps with those who are weeping. And do you know the end of the story? What does Jesus do? He does something about it. He has told Martha, Martha, don't sorrow over death. I am the resurrection and the life. And he proves it by raising Lazarus, who's been dead four days, and he proves it by raising this man back to life. And it's a token of what Jesus will do for all of his people. All of us who suffer in this world, and sometimes we come to this conclusion, I hate life, this is so hard, it's difficult. And Jesus comes along and he says, guess what, I conquered death. Guess what, your best life isn't now, it's still to come. And he brings us hope. Hope in a world plagued by sin and difficulty. And he says, listen, brother, it's coming. Listen, sister, don't ultimately sorrow. I am the resurrection and the life. 
point, beloved, is this. This life is hard. It does come with its sorrow and its sadness. Sometimes you may feel, I hate life. That's okay. But don't lose hope. Because this life was never meant to satisfy. God instilled a curse in this life to keep us from finding ultimate satisfaction in things that he has made so that we would seek our ultimate satisfaction in the maker. I love this quote. One writer had said this, the portrait of the faithful in scripture is not a portrait of the fulfilled. Everything in this life is great. Actually, what defines them is hope. What defines them is a yearning, knowing in their bones, in spite of loss or sorrow or aloneness, that there is something more, something else, something better. And that's true. That's the portrait of faithful people in the Scripture. It's not that they don't experience difficulty and sorrow. It's not that although they've used all of their wisdom and this same event happens, this horrible thing, or, or they're, they're taken when they're young. It's not like something has gone terribly wrong. It's, it's those people understand this life is so temporary. There's something else. There's something better. There's something more. And they're filled with hope. Hope in the future. A hope procured by the death of the Son of God. A hope that was purchased by his blood, that you could be forgiven, that someday you'll be raised to resurrection life. And that's your hope. Do you have it? Do you have that kind of hope? Or are you traveling dead-end streets? I'm looking for hope here. I'm looking for hope here. I'm looking for hope here. I want to be satisfied here. And you keep running into the barricade at the end of the street, and you say, why is this so hard? It's because God is goading you, and he's saying, you'll never find it here. You must come to me. If you're thirsty, I'm the fountain. Come to me through Christ, and you'll find there's something more. There's something better. There's something we're waiting for. Let's live as God's hopeful people. Shall we pray? <clears throat> Father, we are reminded the words of the Apostle Paul that if we have hope in this life alone, we are most miserable. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. That we have the hope of the future. And although we have practical wisdom and biblical insight to live in this world, Yet our ultimate hope is not even in that. For we long for that world that is to come. 
you have placed with your spirit within us that makes us aware of that. We are new creations now, living for a time when the fullness of the new creation will be revealed. Thank you for that hope. You know we need it. We need it in this world that is difficult and sorrowful. So help us as brothers and sisters in Christ to encourage one another with this hope. When we travel the path of life that is painful and sorrowful and difficult, when we come to that right conclusion that there's a hatred of that, there's a frustration in this life, may we have wisdom to know how to encourage one another to keep our eyes on the future, not lose hope. If there be one here today who has not found that hope in Jesus Christ, you work in their heart today turn them to you they would find him for whom their soul can delight we ask this in the name of Jesus